All right. We were just discussing um, a, a natty athlete there from a solid country who's making a decision to, from what we can see, is going for the Olympics, who moved down a little bit of a weight class. And uh, we were saying it looks like he'd have a lot more fun if he just committed to the weight class that wasn't the Olympics. We'd have some, a lot more fun watching him too. Everyone would. He'd do some good numbers. Maybe he's unlikely to make the very unlikely to make the Olympics at the moment. Whereas if you moved up to weight class where he wasn't in the Olympics, at least he'd do some decent numbers and you could look back in 10 years and be like, meh. Yeah. We did some solid. Uh, so welcome back to the Secret Strand Podcast. It appears as though we're doing cold openings now. Cold openings. <laughs> um, we're going to get John trained by day. Joe Rogan. Or no, what is it? Joe Rogan by day? The Secret Strand Podcast. Trained by day. Joe Rogan Podcast. John doesn't like train properly, so you can't say that. No. Uh, today is a new one. We have a little nugget for you. Yep. Uh, so how this is going to work basically Girk loves papers on weightlifting I fucking love it and even in, more so is biomechanics but in, this one's a doozy in the world of weightlifting biomechanics uh, weightlifting anything really what you're always looking for is eastern block coaches yeah and you want their training manuscripts or their studies yeah. to have been translated into English these papers aren't great to read because I love this I love them. Oh, it's, it's, do you know what? Yeah. There's a certain little bit of masochism where you're like, yeah. No, I'm all about it. Using, I'm into it. I'm like, okay, yeah. They're using data in the wrong sense, but, uh, well, data is a plural, really. Yeah. But like, that reads like poetry to me now, all this. Yeah. Well, your brain is stars just after finishing his, uh, his thesis, which you will have noticed from the lack of podcasts, which you've let us know about. Yeah. But Dara's brain is oversaturated with just boring information. My, if, if he, if we my brain is also primed primed for grammatical incorrectness so this this um this paper is the full title is scientific metallurgical aspects of training the kazakhstan select team it was written by ivan alexi ni which you may know as Ilya's former coach who oftentimes went crazy when his athletes did very well <laughs> uh, i actually think alexi ni was banned for a while as a coach because of the whole the numbing thing but then i think he's back now and there's another guy ever and ever turkillery right so they wrote this in 2012 post olympics uh well it was published and it was very usefully translated by bud cherniga who is andrew cherniga junior he likes bud the first he goes by bud does uh, he sport does he actually go by Bud? Yeah, I think he like people like to call him Bud. That's hilarious. Uh it's on Sportivni com. So uh Bud slash Andrew lives in America, but he is I'm I don't know if he is of um Russian ancestry, but he's fluent in Russian. Uh, okay. Well does he live in America? I think he lives in America at the moment. Uh he was a lifter himself. He's very hard to find and there's zero contact information from him, but he writes some phenomenally good science on yeah. weightlifting and biomechanics. And he translates papers. So there's an ocean of uh, Soviet, um, especially Kazakhstan, but also obviously the former Soviet bloc, um, a lot of Russian papers and sports science. And he translates some of them when he appears to get time, because I can imagine it's painful to translate. Uh, yeah. Um, although he seems to enjoy it. And this one is a doozy. So, right? Just so we set the record straight now. Yeah. I'm playing devil's advocate, and I'm not just being a prick. You are. 100%. I... I chose to play devil's advocate. You're just being a prick. Because I enjoy being a prick. But for the... Some might say that's your personality. For the purpose of yeah. this podcast, I'm just going to point out little pieces of this now that... Yeah. Well, see, Dara's problem with this whole thing is because he went into it the mindset that it's a scientific study, but it's more yeah. of a review of their training. Yeah, and this is a really, really interesting point, right? If we take something like this and say, we're getting information about elite level, level weightlifters, what they do how their year plans out, how their weeks and days plan out. It's an unbelievable, valuable research. Dar, let me just interrupt you there, okay? <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. We're fresh from the Chris Kresser and the... Um, and Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, James Wills podcast. Jo- oh, my God. So I'm just going to interrupt there at any chance. And uh, regardless if he provides any valid points, I'm just going to tell him he's wrong. On a serious note, though. Yeah. Don't listen to that uh, podcast. Yeah, it's a horrendous podcast. You're on James Wilkes. Yeah. Like, nobody comes into his job. Yeah. And slaps the other people in the face or gets punched in the face for him. Yeah. Yet he seems to think he has an ability to interpret scientific literature. Yeah. His ability to read statistics. I'd rather shit in my hands and clap. While lying on your back. While lying on my back. 
and decipher statistics rather than get this fella to do it. Um, Dar just wanted to get that off his chest and yeah. I wanted to forget I about feel, it. I feel better now. But here we are. So a preamble for this paper is that it is for a very particular population of people, most of which is not anyone. Uh, I would say it's less than 0.00001% of the population. Yeah, so look, let's just get these things out of the way to start, right? Yeah, so there's, it's... There's 12 lifters. But they make no claims that this no. that this, this is for elite level athletes to win gold medals in weightlifting. And, and it's for these particular athletes. Yeah. So well, we, well, no, I think this is what they're saying the new thing Kazakhstan was going to be. Okay. Go on. So we're going to take this, right, that these are 12 high-level senior athletes. Yes, yeah, so we'll run through the paper and then we'll talk about our... our, our uh, thoughts after will we we'll we just give it a synopsis well usually the paper would start with the introduction and then we have methods this is the podcast. first thing in methods would be participants yeah go on carry on then so there let me just interrupt you there <laughs> this is gonna be the next hour uh so right we point three well, Jay, pull up slide 46 <laughs> so we have uh we have 12 athletes right these are international level uh we could consider them elite level weightlifters or you could call them strawberry jam uh, I'm going to say now that these are involved in systematic doping. What? Yeah. Dara, most of these didn't test positive. Uh, right, so if we take other lifters from that system of tested positive, yeah. and these guys... I know, I'm only joking. Most of the, I'd think a lot of these lads <laughs> did test positive. I'm going to say all of them would test positive. I think a lot of... Like, for example, uh, this is the system really used for the Olympics, and obviously no... Yeah. And there's a picture of... Um, her name uh, Pod Bovata if anyone remembers her she was a very good female lifter from Kazakhstan but I think she actually did test positive twice yeah and but let's not like that That doesn't make this study invalid or anything so this like is that. who it was, was, was for like this yeah. is who this paper was for was doped um, elite weightlifters to get gold medals yeah. at the Olympics okay so Gerf explain what the study is what's their new training protocol so basically they went from the previous Kazakhstan national team method which I suppose is it's not unfair to point out was probably for previous doped athletes. Yeah. Because like it's unfair not to say like and obviously they're in a position where they can't talk about that but we'll say anything. They <laughs> <laughs> literally say anything. So how the study was broken down was they had them the athletes do one year of the cur- of the previous whatever whichever they're doing now so the normal Kazakhstan training and they had them then the next year do the experimental method, which is the one described in the paper. And then they gave a little synopsis of near the end of the gains they made. And so, that, like, long story short, everybody made better gains on the second year of the experimental training method. So it was an average of, like, 28 kilos more than the previous year. So... Can you describe the new training method? Because, or actually, describe the old training method first. I actually don't know what the old training method was. So I think, from the, when I briefly read this, I yeah. think the old training method was pretty much a uh, Russian training method. So would, block I, periodization. I would imagine so. That, yeah, they 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 seem to employ that, but they don't give much yeah, detail. They don't. They don't actually tell you what the sessions were. But you could, we can infer that it was probably a block periodization. Yeah. Uh, with a lengthy enough proprietary phrase preparation phase uh and then lots of the lifts with very little derivatives and so what they're and probably and probably very little maximal work if they were using the old system i would probably it's i'd imagine it was kind of a new agey kind of shit from the new system there in the period they were doing it okay probably a bit more probably a bit of variation i'd imagine but we can okay, only, yeah, we can only yeah. kind of speculate on that but yeah. people know the the, the general consensus of what that was people or you can imagine it in your head so what they did was what their idea was their their hypothesis was that because weightlifting is a speed strength sport you don't want to grow any slow twitch fibers and you want to grow as many fast twitch fibers as possible so their their proposal was there's no point doing more than one to two reps because you only want to train speed and slow twitch or fast twitch fibers and so you want to grow them as much as possible so the only way you can do this is by doing lots of singles. There also their other argument was that the snatch and the clean and jerk it needs to be hyper specific and speed seems to be specific. So you need to be doing what you're doing to get better at what you're doing and you need to be doing lots of it. Basically is long story short is what they were saying. So they want as much fast switch fiber proliferation as possible, high specificity, and they also stress heavily 
that the athlete needs to be going heavy at least once a week in a competition style. Okay. They said that was very important to the program. Yeah, yeah. And Big they, Friday, like. That's where the Big Friday came from, is this paper. <laughs> so this is what they used to get to 2012 Olympics. And from the, we've a heavily documented couple of months of Ilya training. And this is very, very, very similar to what he was doing. So what they did was waves. So Daryl talk a little bit in a minute about the proprioception and kind of, you know, yeah. why going back makes every light weights feel lighter. And so basically they were very adamant on waves. They changed from twice a day training to three times a day training, right? But they also shortened their se- sessions or time spent on each exercise. So before, instead of doing the usual hour and a half of snatching and just snatching ad nauseum, <laughs> they went, we're just going to do 20 minutes. We're going to keep it fresh. Three waves, approximately 20 reps total. No more than 20 minutes. Pass the rest in between exercises. And what they ended up doing basically was training from like 10 o'clock in the day to 10 o'clock the night. Yeah. But they made a full-time job out of training. Just every 40 minutes they were doing a new exercise. They didn't seem to do any back squats from the program they said this was a program so there's no back squats included from what I can see so again this came up recently about Xi Young only front squatting but he again is an elite athlete and he said he, I think he said he back squatted 280 so he doesn't need to back squat anymore no. but anyway they didn't do any back squats from what we can see they trained Monday to Saturday the very the lifts they did were full snatch full clean and jerk snatch from blocks jerk from rack and front squats a final aspect of their program as well was very importantly that they emphasised that 20% of their volume came from jumping. Daryl touch on again in a minute about what depth jumps and what plyometrics Just is and what touching on everything. Why plyometrics is and what is not. Uh, so basically they had Monday, Wednesday, Friday was the same. So it was lots of snatching, lots of clean jerking, lots of front squats. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday was a bit of variation. So then that's when they had the jerk from racks and the snatch from, they call it plints, but it's, it's snatch from block. And then they did their jumping and those kind of variations. So they had three hyper-specific days and then three days which, well, look, it's very hyper-specific for the vast majority of people doing weightlifting in the Western world. But in their case, there was a little bit of variation where there wasn't a loads of snatch from the floor. There was only lots of snatch from the floor. Yeah. And instead of cleaning the weight, they just jerked it from their racks and then they laid box or depth jumps. So they give a lot of science and why they're talking about what they think they're doing and why they think they're doing it. Long story short, it worked very well for them. Um, I suppose the crux of the situation is hyperspecificity as much as you can works really well for sports shock and awe specificity so what okay, I'm going to come in now so wait before I, you come in against already said three things that I'm going to say before you I'm come in against what, what you game against <laughs> is talk about what was the first thing I said so we're going to talk about muscle fibre first no 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 there was other things went, we're just going to explain the methods first so there was depth jumps what was the thing I said before that Oh, the post-activation potentiation. Okay, let's talk about the meta away. first, so we'll talk about that. Um, wait, we'll talk about... Scribble that, write down what you were going to talk about. I, I have it in my head. All right. All right, so... We'll explain the metas first, then we'll talk about what you don't think. So tell them why that works, or should work. The doing waves? Yeah. So there's a few reasons doing waves works, right? And there's a physiological reason, as well as there being psychological reasons. So if, if you look at the physiology of it first, there's something called post-activation potentiation. So activating a motor neuron allows that motor neuron to be fired quicker the next time. So if you take, uh, okay, I'm going to give you an extreme example, right? So yes, if I, if I'm sitting on the couch, yep, uh, or I'm sitting in my car, as you might be now listening to this podcast, and you get me to stand up as fast as I can, I'm going to stand up in a certain speed, right? So sit the stand will be. 1.5 seconds if i've just done a back squat at 200 kilos and you get me to sit in the same position and then stand immediately i'm going to have some post activation potentiation uh some priming of those motor units basically which will allow me to fire faster next time so if we do continuous waves assuming that the level of fatigue ha- hasn't become inhibitory so i'm not really really bait from doing the the snatches just beforehand um or my recovery hasn't been sufficient that like i might have depleted glycogen cells or whatever which would be extremely unlikely in the case of a snatch uh but that i'd have some priming of these motor neuron or motor units 
before I go to the next snatch. Yep. So if I go uh, 100, 110, 120, when I go back to do 110, that 120 prior to that will have primed those uh, motor units to go a little bit faster. The psychological reason for it is, so with weightlifting in particular, uh, we're talking about very, very closed skills. Like the skills are identical every single time we perform the lift the same way each time. And we're trying to get a motor pattern that's extremely ingrained. So the more time we do repetition and the more time we in our head assess a load. So if I say this is 100 kilos and then I go back to 80, 90, 100 kilos again, that load then becomes a hell of a lot easier for me to do in my head because I've done it more and the motor pattern is more ingrained. Perfect. Now, do you want to talk about why they use depth jumps and they didn't do something like, what's very common now, plyometrics, like fucking split lunges. Uh, split rebound j- jumps or something. Lunge split jumps or some shit like that. Why, why did they... S- so, in plyometrics, right, yep. uh, it's the use of a stretch shortening cycle. Yep. Uh, so that is, we have muscle fibers connected to a tendon which is connected to a bone and we're using that muscle to move the bone so the stretch shortening cycle is basically a storing of energy so if i'm jumping down off a box and i bend my knees and bend my ankles my quads and my calves will tense up and there's a a certain storing of of energy in the muscle tendon unit that's going to be released so if i dip and drive and jump I'm going to be able to jump a lot higher than if I just sit down and go from a seat a seated start into a jump. So the reason they're using a depth jump is they're jumping down off a box, hitting the floor and jumping up as fast as they can, which yep. is a depth jump. Uh, the amortization phase, which is the time to stop and then go again. Mm-hmm. So rather than it being like an eccentric loading, which would just be like, sitting slowly down into a squat amortization is about stiffening up as as hard as you possibly can that stores the most amount of energy in those uh, muscular tendon units puts the most amount of force back into it and then it's it's very very similar to doing something like catching a clean and standing up immediately afterwards yep so the level of loading is is very very high and then it's it's in a relatively specific uh bracket of movement say all right. Uh, so, all great so far. All great. <laughs> the teeth haven't come in. Uh, so, on the point of, of, we talked about this earlier, muscle fibers, right? That they want as much fast twitch, in inverted commas, mm-hmm. and as little slow twitch, in inverted commas, as possible, right? And I think an interesting little note on these and that there there's so many myths about twitch fiber twitch type or fiber types and all this going around and yeah that certain people have more of this and certain people have more of that gingers have more fast twitch than anything else ever knows it <laughs> everybody knows it so one interesting thing is that you you're born with a certain ratio of fast twitch to slow twitch and that never ever changes throughout your life or what you might call strawberry jam to dog shit ratio yeah and like that so if i want to be a marathon runner and I'm all fast, which that ain't no good. No. I'm dog shit. You're but dog if, shit. If, but if I want to be a weightlifter, then I'm strawberry jam. So an important thing to note is that like they're not growing more. They're not growing extra fibers, right? There's not like hyperplasia of fibers going on. Well, but the actual, the actual thickness of the fiber increases. So say if I'm... Take they're on about accumulation of fibular mass though. They're on yeah, about increasing the mass. I, oh, I'm getting to it at one. Okay, get to it. So if I'm born with 60% fast twitch, yeah. which is probably like 80 or 90% fast twitch. I, my for you. I forgot my rebuttal already. <laughs> so if I'm born with 60% yeah. and 40% and say that uh, cross-sectional area. So if I was to cut, imagine my muscle is made, my quad say is made up of thousands of ropes. <coughs> Barely. I have... <laughs> 60,000 fast twitch ropes yep. and I have 40,000 slow twitch ropes so if I cut straight across those all I'm doing if I train to get more in inverted commas fast twitch is I'm swelling the size of those fast twitch ropes so the thickness of the muscle fiber is increasing or the cross-sectional area is what you call it and then the slow twitch fibers are, are shrinking 
So the amount of fibers remains the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's hypertrophy versus hyperplasia. But I just thought we should mention that because it's not clear in the paper. Well, that's <laughs> very, very, very slide relevant. Slide 89. Very, very relevant. it's on slide 89. Jamie, pull it. That's very relevant to the natural athletes lifting. But as we know, um, the steroids increase satellite cell proliferation. Yeah. So if you're taking a shitload of gear or any amount of gear probably and doing this much work. How many milligrams is a, shit, is a shitload? All of it, I'd imagine. <laughs> so if, they, if they're if they taking a load of gear yeah. and they're training like this, they yeah. are going to get more fibular mass accumulation, especially yeah, the fast yeah. switch, which is uh, like, I suppose the big problem with this paper is they're not like uh, asterisks, all the lads were on gear and the girls. And yeah, this yeah. is why this theory works. And it, it would be very interesting to see if if everything else remained the same over the two years, you know? Yeah. Because if we have, the, the first year is 2004 and the second year is 2005. And, like, we may as well just get into it now. Yeah, take go on. Off. Get uh, into it. Take off your shoes. <laughs> I will take off my shoes. Yeah, I know you like uh, that. My Slush. first issue with this is, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, actually, my... You have many issues. I know you do. Yeah. Go on. Uh, one of the issues I have with this is yeah. so 2004 is the first year where they're using traditional yeah. uh, training methods yep. then 2005 where they're using non-traditional or this new method 2004 is an Olympic year uh, so if we're taking 12 of the top athletes from Kazakhstan how many of those have competed in the Olympics and then how is their physiological training status changing in an olympic year where they're going to be tested yeah versus a non-olympic year where they're as far away from competition testing as they're going to be i think the results are given are from the athletes from 2004 and 2005 but this is the program they used then to achieve the results for the athletes in 2012 so i don't think they would have been the same athletes okay so it's but, still interesting it's yeah. interesting to note like Joe, but you, I'd say you, they're, you have a competition year versus a non-competition year I said their physiological status was high and <laughs> <laughs> I'd say it was loaded with different hormonal responses yeah that's an an interesting piece of this right so I, yeah. I know you're going to start talking about this now of yeah. like the different things they're trying to uh, they're trying to achieve with this right and, and why they thought this program would work yeah one of the things they're saying is because the loading is so high yeah. and so acute is that they're actually changing the endocrine response. Yeah. So they're saying the hormonal response is different. And uh, like, uh, fuck it. <laughs> they've like, they've no basis. Well, I like not no basis, but they have the leg to stand on it would be what I would say about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree I, with you here. I totally agree with you. So it kind of struck me when I read it earlier. Yeah. And uh, that's like a big wink in the paper. And so... Uh, where is it they have it somewhere oh else. yeah i actually have it here so the activation of fast which most are fast motor units yeah uh conjugate with the limit tension of the cns so basically putting very or extremely high amounts of load through your central nervous system will stimulate an endocrine system response and increases the concentration of hormones in the blood i bet it does <laughs> Like, see, my, like, I know what your problem is. You read this study and you're thinking about it from an amateur weightlifter's yeah, point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about this. Is this someone did a study, which I'm incredibly grateful that someone yeah. did, and I'm very interested in it. And regardless of those athletes being on gear or not, they did this study in the best possible way without sacrificing the athlete's yeah. future or current performance. And while if you take it that they're on gear and you don't care either way, I think this is a super, super interesting paper. It's very interesting. And one point I think we should mention now is that, like, yeah. A lot of the big weightlifting countries do studies like this and they're not published. Yeah, yeah. And then the ones that are published are never translated. So, like, yeah. we're unbelievably grateful just to be able to see this data or these data. Such a high-level athletes as well. Yeah. Uh, these are things that would usually never get released. Or if they are released, they're yeah. released uh, a decade later. Or, yeah. sorry, two, de three, four, five decades later. Like, we still don't have full training manuscripts from, like, the 60s when yeah. the Russians are doing what they're doing like these papers are so interesting to read through and that's why I think we felt this podcast is going to be important to kind of break it down yeah like uh, it's very important from from a scientific point of view if you're listening to this this is um fantastic like yeah it's a, as like a it's just a purely theoretical 
dessert to eat. Yeah, this yeah, is phenomenal. Yeah. Like I, that's why I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, we'll t- we'll get to it in a bit. Why this is absolutely useless for basically any amateur <laughs> weightlifter. But um, what okay. else? It was there anything else you kind of you weren't a big fan of, or what they're suggesting regardless of gear status or not? Uh, yeah. So if we're taking this from a scientific study, yeah, basis, yeah, uh, they have no control group. Yeah. If you were to do a control group, what would you do? Uh, okay, so what you do is would 12, you? 12 isn't enough. Yeah. Uh, so you do something called a power analysis, which would, you'd enter in all your... If you were like coming at this, if you yeah, were like, so this is how you get any weight after better. If somebody was like, Darry, you're such a good sports scientist. You're pure class. We're going to give you money to do the study and here's the Kazakh lads. Uh, have at them. So you do a power analysis, right? Now it'll tell you how many people you need in the study. Yeah. Uh, so that might come back to you need 300 people in the study over yeah. two years so you get 300 lifters and you divide those into an intervention group and a control group you'd randomly divide them in and then you do match controls so if i if i'm 21 year old 105 kilo lifter uh and i'm in the intervention group then i need a 21 year old 105 kilo lifter control yeah. Uh, who's male as well. And like you, you match them up as best you can. That matching is all done not by the, it's usually not done by the experimental team. So that would be like, I get one of my buddies to look down through the list, mm-hmm. match these over and back. Uh, what I do then is you'd, you'd randomly select who in the control group is going to be year one and who's going to be year two. So like we spoke about why this wouldn't work uh, in an actual system because you're not going to be like, oh well we we don't know yeah. if this is gonna work or yeah. not so you could do this or else you're gonna do this so what you do is the ethics of that wouldn't be very um wouldn't be great no uh so what you do then is once you've your control group set out and your intervention group set out you pick who's gonna do what one on what year so you'll either be doing uh the old system on year one and the new on year two or the new on year one and the old on year two then what you do is you test them at baseline, you test them at multiple time points throughout. Uh, this would be ensuring that everything else remained the same. So uh, their diet would remain the same. Their recovery protocols would remain the same. Uh, their medical protocols would stay the same. They wouldn't change weight class. They wouldn't change their technique, which in a study on weightlifting is absolutely huge. So if you get some new coaching stimulus, like you know this yourself, if you change a technical aspect of your snatch, it will have nothing to do with the physiology or the training protocols per se. Someone could say, Gurf, tighten your shoulders up more in the bottom and suddenly you've made a 3% increase and that's skewed all the results. So you're staying technique-wise or biomechanically, you're staying almost identical uh, over the course of your two years. Then after multiple time points, you probably test every three, six, nine. 12 months all the way out to 24 months you compare those data and see is this actually the training program making a difference or is it the second year was just a better year to make increases yeah uh, or whatever it was and then you'd, you'd want to do some kind of follow-up study maybe two years down the line or three years down the line to see if those uh had any effect on the athlete and kind of long-term development I think I'm sure I'm after missing out on one or two things, but that's basically how you run it. And like the only problem with that is, and one of the reasons I suppose they couldn't do that was because ethically, they had a very very good idea after year decades of experience yeah. that the new program is probably going to work better. So how could you give um, a kid who's 16 Olympic hopeful potentially a life changing decision and put him on a less optimal program? Well, you wouldn't for from a a selfish point of view from say the organization's point you're wasting potentially good athletes and then you're also probably from a less important point I think they care less but from the athlete's point of view you're kind of potentially sacrificing your Olympic dreams or more so like as we know when when Ilya repeated the gold medal at the Olympics in 2008 and in 2012 it was an absolute he was the first repeat gold medal and it was absolutely astronomical for the country so there's that kind of plainness I think another good point on this is that like uh, Summers, the guy who used to be the US gymnastics team coach, uh, or some coach for the US gymnastics yeah. team, used to talk about this. He was saying, like, the reason this stuff isn't in the literature is because 
coaches are moving as fast as they possibly can. Yeah. The same way athletes are moving as fast as they possibly can. And like in a in a sport like weightlifting, it's not as prominent, but in gymnastics, you're by the time you're 16 or 17 year old female, you're done. You yep. know, like you are elite. Yep. You have surpassed everybody else and then you're done by the time you're kind of 18 or 19. So like the the velocity of high level sports is or like the operational tempo of high level sports is yeah. through the roof. If you're with a professional team and a certain style of physio is better, all the physio changes immediately because you're out at a high level team. So like that's definitely ethically they're not going to stand behind that kind of study design. Yeah. And that's why this is realistically, this was probably done retrospectively. Yeah. Where someone came in and said, Oh, this is the new training program. We're going to try it. This is the proof we have. Uh, this is why we want to do it. And then they say, okay, we have all the results from last year. Let's see what this year does. And that's like, it's more than likely a post hoc kind of thing yeah. to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's just do an analysis to see if it was better. And obviously, they obviously had all of the data recorded expertly. Obviously, yeah, yeah. So I think they're touching something interesting there about the gymnastics. There's a line in the uh, in the paper: an extraordinary, extraordinarily large training load diminishes work capacity, which unavoidably, unavoidably necessitates inclusion of retro or restorative training, along with reduction of the intensity of the loading. Exercise is essentially different than dynamic and speed characteristics competition lifts were excluded from the training program. So what that line tells me is a lot of athletes got fucked over and absolutely destroyed, I'd say, from the line. Large training load diminishes work capacity, which unavoidably, that one word... Necessitates inclusion of restorative training. So that means it's like that studies from the Soviet Union where the depth jumps went from... We uh, broke a lot of people. <laughs> broke a lot of people's legs trying as high as possible depth jumps. It sounds similar here where unavoidably necessitates unavoidably means we tried to avoid it and it didn't work yeah which is unfortunate but i suppose that's the legacy of some of the uh, soviet black kind of sports science uh yeah number. When, you, when you see something like that as well and you see 12 at the end of it yeah uh like a number of 12 being included in the study yeah probably means that there's only 12 full data sets uh for two years yeah like how many people do you have training in a, a training center? Yeah, exactly. You might you might have fifty, you might have sixty. Mm -hmm. uh, how many training centers did I have in Kazakhstan? They definitely have two big ones. Yeah. Uh, so like twelve people at the end of that. Yeah. Tells you something. And what they were trying to say with this as well was that this training program, because the load and the volume remained very consistent throughout the year, was that they were able to train at higher for longer without unnecessary junk volume. <laughs> But the problem with that is, there's another paper that we we might get into at some point later. But long story short, it's uh, it's written by some Russian weightlifters in the late '90s, early 2000s, talking about the best way to train without gear because of the introduction of that pesky out of competition train testing. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So what they basically said for natty athletes was that you need to do a lot of repetitions, like below 75 percent, and like Jesus, you don't like fives to sixes kind of repetitions. Apparently. And then they're looking at repetitions between 70 to 80, like twos and threes. Yeah. And then very rarely touching 90% plus or only pre-competition or even never at all and only leave you to competition. Jeez, that sounds very like a program I know. The <laughs> S strength. No, that's too obvious. Seeker.S. Uh, yeah. Weightlifting. Uh, S.Ica. Mad how you come to the same conclusions. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, but I think it's interesting that basically they... Like, we just can't emphasize enough that this paper is written for people, and we can say this now, I suppose, because a lot of these athletes, we can infer that a lot of them did test positive, and we know that they test positive. So, I'd like to talk about how maybe some of this top process could be very useful for some amateur weightlifters. Do you want to bounce them over and back every second one? So, I'm thinking pre competition, you've had a fucking, you better have some fucking really good two month GPP phase there or a month at least of like you've prepared fours in the snatch prepared thy body you've done like you've done six weeks of like you've been doing some cardio as well like yeah you've been doing a lot of hypertrophy work yeah, non-specific yeah. variations you're pretty lean you're pretty lean your diet's good and you're sleeping a lot then you move into a period of maybe eight well six weeks let's say let's say six weeks of of twosies and treesies yeah Maybe more, probably eight weeks actually, I'm going to say, depending on your level of uh, 
of your experience. So if if you're if you're a better lifter, you'll actually need longer because you'll need longer time to prepare for heavier weights. If you're I don't want to say shitter, but that's what's coming out of my mouth. If you're a n- younger lifter, you can actually move through each phase uh, faster because your your absolute weights are not that big, so you can kind of you'll recover and adapt, move through each one faster. But let's say you're an average. I don't know, let's say you're doing 120, 150, you'll probably need maybe, or more maybe you might need six to eight weeks yeah. of a period where you're doing twosies and threesies, uh, complexes. Yeah, doing what you consider to be kind of yeah. more traditional weightlifting training. And then in the last, I'm going to say about four weeks, now you don't do what they do in six days a week, all day long. What you could do is something like two clean and jerk sessions a week, maybe three. Again, depending on your ability to recover and your experience level your technical proficiency, your genetics, your nutrition, your sleep, as much as you can allow while still remaining very fast. Because that's was one of the things I think is useful to say from the program is that you need to train to be fast. Yeah, You need to try, be as specific as, specific as possible in your training, uh, which is nothing new, of course. No. And then for three or four weeks, you do these kind of wave series. Um as often as you can without compromising recovery or getting injured. So you're probably looking at something like two clean jerk sessions a week, maybe two snatches, three. Dep- Again, like this really heavily depends on how good of an athlete you are and what kind of your goals and levels Definitely. are. Definitely. And like, yeah, it, it depends how comprehensive that prep phase you spoke about was. If you, they can't emphasize that enough yeah. that it's so important. So we, like we spoke about this on the, on the podcast before, like, uh, a paradigm or a, a, a kind of system called maximum recoverable volume. So your MRV, uh, it's something that uh, Mike Israel speaks about a lot. Like it's how many sets and reps at a certain load you can do per week and then recover for the next session. Uh, that's really, really important. With another kind of facet of this that I... I suppose in that regard, the volume is quite low in this. Yeah. Uh, but another facet, like besides from your point something we don't often do as weightlifting coaches and weightlifting athletes is like facilitative loading so things that will make us much much faster like you had an argument with someone on the internet this week mm-hmm. uh, I didn't have an argument about I tried to educate someone and they wouldn't listen I didn't lose my comments uh, it was a, a CrossFit coach telling their athletes fucking oh bandit cleans so I'm going to just say in the context of this paper and then I'm going to say kind of in the general context why facilitative loading a lot of the time for speed development or all of the time for speed development uh, is greater than kind of inhibitory loading. So excessive loading. So in the context of this paper, if I'm doing waves and I have uh, systems such as post-activation potentiation or... uh, increased efficacy of my technique or increased confidence to put more speed into the bar what we're probably going to see is greater bar velocities at greater levels of intensity over the course of this cycle so the barbell is moving faster and it's moving faster at heavier weights over the course of the training cycle that's something like you could measure and it's more than likely going to come out uh, as being true if done right if done correctly, yeah. yeah. So, like, if if the loading of these waves is right and you're recovering correctly or whatever. And you spend three months getting ready for this. Yeah. Uh, this is good for weightlifting in the same way it's good for sprinting, in the same way it's good for anything where you're developing as much speed and explosive power as possible. So, if I take... If I want to run faster, right, I don't run up a hill, I run down a hill. Maximal speed development is about getting or teaching your muscle units to contract as quickly as possible and it's about maximal strength at the end of that so if i just run up a hill right i'm able to put more force but i'm not able to do more power so like power is the rate at which work is done so it's the rate at which my uh, motor units will contract is the important thing so rather than running up a hill or running with a sled on or running with a a parachute if i'm just worried about maximal speed not acceleration not about anything else maximal speed i can move at i run down a very very slight hill so it's called like facilitative loading it would be the same as me having a band around my hips and getting pulled slightly forward all the time when i'm sprinting that's 
forcing me to have to move my legs faster. So you're saying reverse bends on the snatch is all I'm getting from this. <laughs> so what's incredibly unhelpful in the sport of weightlifting yeah. is us adding banded tension yeah. to a barbell. On the opposite direction. Yeah. The barbell to be yeah. What we're trying to do in these waves where we're moving as fast as possible, we're talking about recruiting as much fast twitch muscle fiber as possible, is learning or getting our body to learn how to move as fast as we can. When we do things like putting bands on a barbell, we're firstly changing the rate gravity work or the force with which gravity acts upon the bar. Yeah. Like 200 kilos falls at the same speed 20 kilos does. So we shouldn't be trying to slow ourselves down in weightlifting. We should be trying to speed ourselves up. Absolutely. I don't think, I know you were taking the piss, but there might be someone listening to this who, who thinks, I'm going to put a band on the barbell. Yeah. And... I'm going to move as fast as I possibly can. Realistically, you don't need to do that, right? If you want to move fast, you need to watch people who move fast and try and emulate their speed. You need to be doing appropriate loading and trying to emulate their speed. And then doing those things like waves, we allow ourselves multiple, multiple rounds of practice at increasingly heavy weights, then decrease. Increasingly heavy weights, then decrease. So we get this thing over and over again where... I put enough force into the bar to make 60 kilos move fast. I put enough force into the bar to make 70 kilos look fast. Put enough force into the bar to make 80 kilos look and move fast. And then I go 70, 80, 90. Then I go 80, 90, 100 or whatever it is. That's very, very important. And it's, it's not quite facilitative loading because we're not altering the load on the bar, but we're ensuring that the bar is moving faster. Because don't put bands in your barbells. You're the one moving the bar. Yeah. At no point is the ground or anything else moving with you. Yeah, and I've never, ever, ever seen a positive outcome. No. Maybe if you're it, wait, look, if you're cleaning sixty kilos. Yeah. Uh, don't do it. Don't like if you're I, cleaning sixty kilos. Yeah. Anything's gonna make you better cleaning. I think my biggest gripe with that as well is that it's so. I don't have a huge gripe with people trying things whether it'll make them better or not. What I do have a big gripe with is doing something that has a high chance of injury for very low return. And now we're not also talking about a, an adverse acute event where something bad happens to the band suddenly. You might be able to do these for two years with zero issues, right? But the loading this will put on your joints, tendons and ligaments is much greater. And at the areas you don't want it and you just simply don't need that when you're doing so much weightlifting. It's no. just going to increase them massively and you're definitely going to end up with more injuries than you would have. I, I got almost guaranteed that you would end up with uh, some kind of ligament or tendon strains or some kind of joint issues if you do this consistently for two or three years I, I like I would be so sure of that like I think it would yeah just and like we're going to move on from this issue now yeah. because like we've hashed it out to death over the last day or so but yeah. uh, the last thing on the banded work is that in training programs or in weightlifting and powerlifting programs it's so important that we get specific loading in and that our training is specific yeah that we need to ensure we save a lot of like our recoverable volume for the, those specific exercises not for the non-specific exercises absolutely so I, I don't want to be uh, belt squatting or jammer pressing at the start of a session and tiring myself out yeah or I don't want to be doing it at the end of a session and then having inhibitive effects on the next session do you know, like, yeah, you, you have to be really careful with that time, for sure. Yeah, like programming snatches and cleaning jerks is incredibly difficult because they beat people up so much and we have to do so many of them. Like the, the Nirvana of... That's of, why this training program was made. Yeah. To try and stop having people to do so many of them. That was that was literally the idea. I think the Nirvana of weightlifting programming is... Or the kind of the... the, the what would you say? The, the perfect scenario or the... The, the way you want, the perfection is that you only do snatch and clean and jerk. Yeah. So that like the whole idea of, of weightlifting training is to end up with just doing snatch, clean and jerk. But it just never, ever, ever happens for pretty much <laughs> anyone ever. And absolutely, it just works for nobody. Like, so the ideal scenario is that you just do snatch, clean, jerk, and you'll get better at snatch, clean, and jerk because you don't want to waste any time doing things or not. So like you're moving in a straight line doing snatch, clean, and jerk. You move into a variation 
that helps you fix whatever issue you're having satch clean jerk and then you try to move as quickly back as you possible to satch clean jerk but because we're not professional athletes nobody's that perfect that they could possibly ever get to that scenario what it really looks like rather than a straight line is we look like variation side or side like a tachograph or, or the uh, stenograph or whatever. Yeah, or like a bar graph. Yeah. Like Do you know where we have, we have eight bars across our screen and we're gradually adding a small bit to the top of each bar and bringing it all up. I actually think stenograph is the person in the court who records with the typewriter. Yeah, that's what it is. What's the, the earthquake one? Oh... Jesus, no. But anyway, so it'll kind of look like there'll be massive variations like in pretty much no matter who you are, yeah. no matter what you're doing. On that point, right, there's yeah. a nice analogy for this that, uh, so if I'm a rugby player and I ideally, to best, or if we're taking training spe- specificity, uh, I just play rugby matches to be a better rugby player. Does that not work? Yeah, it does. It, it works, right? But... You get really, really beat up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have huge injury rates. Yeah. But then, right, if I... So say I'm a bit slow hitting rocks. Yeah. Uh, or I'm not that strong when I hit a rock. My ability to develop in hitting rocks and becoming stronger is only the amount of rocks that pop up in that match. So if I can only hit three or four rocks in a game, mm-hmm. uh, there might be 50 or 60 rocks in a game. Uh, if I can only hit two or three of them, I'm not going to develop right. So then what I do is I take that microcosm of needing to make my legs and hips stronger. I bring it into the gym and I do back squats and deadlifts. And then I can go out onto the pitch with a raised level just in that area. And it's not specific to rugby, but it's specific enough or pointed enough that now when I go back, I'm still only hitting two or three rocks but my training effect has been brought in from somewhere else. And it's the exact same when weightlifting. Uh, I might need to make my back stronger for when I catch a clean. I could keep doing cleans to make my back stronger, mm-hmm. but that would really beat me up. Whereas I could go away and do front squats or deadlifts and make my back stronger. I'd be very intelligent with the loading and not beat myself up. And then I go back to my cleans and my back is stronger. So it kind of sounds what the, like the Chinese do or what we can see yeah. if what they're doing is lots of assistance exercises but then get back to the snatch clean jerk as much as you yeah. can but you take as much time as you need to fix the issue and only then do you return so yeah. you have nice like, it seems like someone messaged me actually they I think they were it was in I think they were in Taipei and they said some of the Chinese provincial team comes train with them the odd time and they said like up until they get to the national team they literally do like like three high pulls two snatches and snatching like all the time they're snatching yeah, and stuff like yeah, that like yeah. loads of like variation and complexes and obviously we know the Chinese are kind of well known for massive amounts of variation and use of like snatching and snatch pulls clean pulls really ultra heavy as well like super maximal like way above what like like the Soviet literature is not a fan of muscle mass a lot of times you see something speculation that extra muscle makes it harder to relax the muscle or more muscle fibers create like intracellular pressure that's not needed and makes it harder for like the antagonist muscle to move because it's bigger stuff like that and like and you'll see a couple of times they mention especially like they actually mentioned this paper that the that that was not the case like that is not how muscles work like it's not bigger muscles are slower like the, that kind of muscle bone thought is it's fun it's interesting to see that it was in the soviet literature like that yeah. they, that they're saying that they don't like heavy pulls because that's not the dynamics of the, the lift. Like you only want assistance exercise most of the time to be at or exceeding the dynamics. So doing just on, on the point of heavy pulls as well, then like that's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. We're talking about uh sprinting with a parachute behind us. Yeah. Or sprinting with a sled, you know? Yeah. We're slowing ourselves down and we're not making our pull faster. Yeah. And then like anything that's slowing us down, we're developing more and more slow twitch fibers. Or allowing those to to increase in strength. We're still keeping the the intention for the timing to be the same, though. Yeah. Which is, it's kind of a logical fallacy, you know. When you listen to that, you might be, well, why wouldn't the band pulling the bar down work? Because you're just really fucking up the timing. Yeah. But when you're doing things like when you're doing a sprint, you're doing the your exact same motion, but you're just doing it slower because it's harder. Or your intention is, or if you're a good coach, he won't be letting you go to a series where your running technique is vastly different from your your sprinting technique or whatever yeah and like for 
people who mightn't have a, a background in sprint training or plyometrics training, the ultimate rule of thumb that you do not break is that when you're sprinting and you're doing sprint sets specifically for sprints, once your times stop increasing mm-hmm. or decrease, you stop. And it's the same with jumps. Yeah. Once your jumps stop increasing or decrease, you stop. Like when I'm doing jumps at the moment, if I feel in any way fatigued, I just don't do them. Yeah, because you're training yourself to jump slower. Yeah. It's it's not like you a, don't like it's not this thing of like go hard every day. Like, yeah, yeah, like oh, just let's get after it. Because that kind of does work for like it works for strength. The shit days, but it doesn't work for speed. No, unfortunately, speed is very specific. Yeah. It seems to be speed needs to be done at the speed you do want to do the speed, or or in excess of the speed you want. If you can get to that point, yeah. exactly. Uh, like so, they like death jumps, but uh, I would say for anyone who's thinking maybe I'll add some jumps in, I think it's important to note that death jumps are not great on the old jointy poodles or the tendons. No. Uh, what I think is a better little thing is kind of you can do so weightlifting has been shown to correlate with like uh, vertical jump or broad jump so what you could do is squat jumps at a bar I think are nice but you've got to be really really moderate with the weight you're using so like just doing it with the bar again it's the intention doing them like twice a week in a session where you're not doing lots of snatch clean and jerk you're not sore. If you feel sore, you feel slow, just don't do them. But if you feel kind of that, for want of a better word, kind of spring in your step when you're doing them, just give it a few reps, a few reps of three to four, five reps maybe, and then move on. Or you can do stuff like a little just bit of a jump the, over boxes. Yeah, like I prefer the jump over a box. Yeah, they're good to than, the, than the barbell jump squats. Because yeah. what you get a lot, like if we take the amortization phase is the really, really important one. But you would have that too, I suppose, in, in the Yeah, so the you have squats. that yeah. when you do it. Yeah. But most people, when they jump with a barbell, jump. Yeah. And then they land. Yeah. And then they squat down. Yeah. And jump. And no. then they land. If you're doing the jumps, like with the barbell, it's up, land, up, yeah. land, up, land. It like, should be like a yo-yo, yeah. Up and down, up and down. Yeah, and it's like, it's a really, really... Nothing wrong with doing that without the bar too. No, not at all. Just to get good at them. Yeah. Uh, it's a really conscious effort to be landing, stopping, going again, landing, stop, go again. Yeah. You know, it's, like it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult movement to get. Whereas I think when we have, if we put a 24-inch box out in front of us, we get our feet in a pulling position, I dip drive and jump over the box. Then I land, I'll stop in some bit of a quarter squat position. Yeah. I'll turn around. Or if I have multiple boxes in a row, I like the multiple boxes kind of gets you, kind of gets you going. But you have to be careful, of course. Yeah, it's the same thing. You just have to be careful that you're actually doing a rebound. Yeah, kind of using that stretch shortening cycle, uh, to the most like. One of the things as well with with plyometrics is like Dara was saying, if your speed slows down, stop doing them. So doing them at the end of a long session is a terrible yeah, time to do them. Very very bad. The best time, I think, to do plyometrics is it's as your accessory session on a different day so uh you're not going to be tiring yourself out for the lifts you're not going to be doing squats straight beforehand you might have a 25 minute plyo session take 15 20 minutes off and then you go and do your squats and accessories yep uh just a little caveat to to all this plyometrics and jumping for the UKSCA the minimum requirement for starting plyometrics training and starting plyometrics training with them is jumping and landing. So it's hop, land on one foot, yeah. hop, land a meter in front of you on one foot. The minimum requirement to start that is a double body weight squat. Interesting. So a lot it, of people listening might not have that actually. Yeah. So like if you're a 90 kilo male and you don't squat 180 kilos, they wouldn't be recommending you to start. Obviously, you can start nice and slow. Yeah. But you're certainly not going to be doing the things like we're talking about where it's yeah. like, depth jumps or jumping with a barbell or anything like that uh like finding a, a foot high box and standing and jumping on it while it may be a little bit demeaning to you is definitely a good place to start yeah uh, plyometrics injure a lot of people and that's why like the UKSCA, which would be kind of the guiding light in strength and conditioning over this side of the pond uh would be very very set on that double body weight squat prerequisite and like while 
not doing jumps when you're slow is important to make sure you, you don't get slower. It's also important that you're less likely to injure yourself because if you are fatigued and you do shitty jumps or you're not warmed up properly or whatever, you're not feeling that day, there's a much higher chance of some kind of injury happening, which is what you do not want. No. Uh, the fronts of my shins, you could grate cheese off them from the dents that are in my tibias from landing on boxes yeah. or jumping over fences yeah. when I'm too tired and I'm doing stupid things. It's just <laughs> like... You kind of want it psychologically too. You want it to feel easy. Like you want yeah. to feel the jump because like if you spend a two hour session training and then you go try to do some jumps and you feel like shit you're like fuck I am not fast like an interesting thing Gabriel when he when we were asking about jumps yeah he was saying he used to do sets of kind of 10 or 12 and they were priming him for his next session yeah he was saying that he feels or he felt primed when he did them he wasn't ever doing them to the point of fatigue or anything even remotely similar to fatigue he would they were nice springy jumps he jumps like like an a spring hair is how I describe it. He said he has he, a graceful jump. A phenomenal. It's, it's weird. and Crane, if anyone doesn't follow him on Instagram, you're missing out. When you see great lifters jumping, it looks like they're jumping in slow motion. Yeah. Which is... It's just so smooth. Because they're in the air for so long. That's yeah. why it looks slow. You see shit people jumping, it looks really fast because they're not going very far. <laughs> the, motion, the jump is over quickly. Uh, uh, Gabriel said he did squat jumps at 220 kilos. And I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that he was leaving the floor. Okay, right. So this paper was concluded with two kind of uh, two statements. So the first one is our research shows that the sportsman training with our experimental program, which is the one Gurf talked about, uh, which models competition structure and conditions maxfully incorporated in a un an un a unidirectional training vector. So this was the, what this was the idea was there was no preparation phase, there was no yeah, yeah, accumulation. You just, you just go straight towards competition. It's all realization phase. Everything is competition specific. That's why they said they actually said a line that the mock competition every week is vital to the program. Okay, so basically they say people following this program yeah. realize a higher rate of improvement in a year cycle. They get better gains. Yeah. Right, and then the second conclusion is the national select team of the Republic of Kazakhstan trained according to the experimental program, which in turn enabled them to achieve a stable rise in sports mastery over a year cycle and obtain high results at the Asian World and London Olympic Games. I love the phrase sports mastery, master of sport. I love those. Okay. They have such heavy meaning in... Are you uh, standing by both of those? I love heavy meaning in... Uh, they have such a wealth of like it means something in Russia when you say the master of sports yeah um, uh, so right the first one yeah we Which talked we talked about why the study isn't ideal right so you probably can't draw that conclusion the, uh, they're calling it a meta, um, metodology review I suppose is that uh, is it misleading to say that they're calling it a study yeah it's they're, yeah it's not a study yeah uh, it, it's interesting flight right? 86 Dara <laughs> wrong oh, that was a headphone warning for wrong uh, so that's they did show higher rates of improvement which is true yeah. you probably can't that probably won't be repeatable right for you uh, for anyone well for them it probably will be this you. this is it number two is the one that irks my soul because you, you see this all the time when you look at elite level athletes yeah. and they'll say uh, they ranked higher at the World Cup they ranked higher at the Olympic Games yeah. they ranked higher in national competition whatever it is right yes most of the time yes you're uh, or all of the time yeah your results in competition do not solely rely on you because yeah if they do this yeah and the rest of the world has food poisoning yeah they've still achieved a stable rise in sports mastery well, if I, they if, uh, hold on wait go on if they do this yeah and the rest of the world are injured yeah they still achieve a stable rise in sports mastery if they do this yeah yeah and less people show up yeah they still achieve it so anytime this is just a nice little I think though jabbing the guts for some papers there's a few of them out there at the moment published last year yeah uh, any paper that claims well hang on now this second. works yeah 
because we ranked better in this Olympic cycle. Yeah. This worked because we ranked better in this World Cup. But, but soccer but, World Cup. But this is You the, know the paper I'm talking about. You're not talking about this paper. I know you're not talking about no, it. No, I'm not. If, but weightlifting is incredibly objective though. Doesn't matter. It Do, does matter. No, you can't you if can't you, use a competition result. You absolutely to can try and claim physiological objective. It's it's not incredibly objective. Weightlifting is a number. What? It's, Hold on. Yeah. So Yeah. Uh, what percentage of lifts has Tyon Tao missed in competition? 50. 50%. Yeah. So he's missed half of every single lift he's ever done in international competition. Yep. So if Tyon Tao... This paper isn't about Tyon Tao though, is it? <laughs> if Tyon Tao shows up... Yeah. And he has a great day. Yeah. He's world champion. I don't. I think they're objectively talking about numbers though. Doesn't matter. It you does matter. You cannot use... No, they're saying high results at Asian World and London Olympic Games. You cannot use competition results to verify physiological effect I think in this particular case and what they're saying means nothing to me their <laughs> their objective result is what the no. means no I don't agree with you I, I, turn off the podcast <laughs> it's over uh, thanks for listening guys yeah what paper are you talking about uh, I know you're something else there. you're not talking about this what is it can you talk about it here? you don't want to talk about it I don't want to talk about it alright I think that was quite good if you like that kind of thing there is plenty more kind of shit like this that we could do um, yeah. we do enjoy let it let us know if, yeah. you, if you thought it was good um, thanks for listening so just some in closing don't do a lot of jumps if you're not ready don't do what they say in the program because <laughs> you're not in gear and you probably won't be ready but I think it's important to bear in mind that sports specific why can't I say specificity 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 is important so you should try and get there in the most sensible slow possible way for and do you know like a really nice little takeaway from this is yeah. maybe try a, a few waves yeah, Gabriel actually, so interestingly, so Waves has been around for years and weightlifting, like when I started, Waves is a thing, but Waves is only done when you did shit at the top waist, you waved <laughs> back up again to try That's it again. exactly the only so time I used to do this. This is not what they were doing. <laughs> Drop to 90 kilos and go again. And that wasn't the local to our group thing, that no, was no, kind that of was an international everybody. thing, it was in like lots of things, it was like, oh, just build back up again and see what happens. But they have a very methodological approach to do, using Waves uh, Gabriel loves waves as well. He said it's the yeah. only way to train. Which is their their approach is very similar. Yeah, very very good. But anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks guys. Dara's wrong as always. Goodbye. <laughs> I'm the person editing this. I love the final say. <laughs> Jeff was wrong. <laughs>